profession of faith. Uh, we're now in week one of the twelfth article. Has, has been our practice. We're going to break down each article into three parts. Week one, this week, uh, being the biblical foundation of our held beliefs. Week two will be the historic development of our beliefs. And week three will be the practical applications of our held beliefs. I have the easy part. Um, because all the work's already been done by the Holy Spirit through His inspiration of the authors of the Bible. Everything's already written down. Uh, we'll attempt to touch on two to three key statements in each of the articles. This is not to diminish or elevate one statement over another. Uh, we just don't have the time to cover all of them. The plan is to simply go over what uh, the Word of God has to say about as to where to find the basis of our beliefs. Uh, so we'll be going over quite a bit of scripture. I've posted an outline slash handout on Church Center, if y'all don't have it. Uh, for you to follow, if you don't have access to that, or you don't want to look down the whole time, we got it up there. Um, or I can text it to you. plan is to touch on the bolded topics um, under each of the articles. I've attempted to give scripture references for a majority of the topics so you can see that what we hold to is indeed biblical. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're so thankful for your word. It's God-breathed. We're so thankful that it's true, that it is infallible. And we're so thankful for our Savior. But we're thankful for this church, and so as we go through these held beliefs, we do pray that you're glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, with a show of hands, not many of you in here, I guess everybody heard I was teaching today. <laughs> do you believe the Bible to be the Holy Spirit-breathed, inspired, Christ-fulfilling, infallible and inerrant word of God. All right, good. Because <laughs> I'm not here to prove to you the truth of Scripture with convincing evidences of its reality, of its reliability. I'm going to show you what it says and where it says it. I stand with Pastor Spurgeon when he said Scripture is like a lion. Who ever heard of defending a lion? Just turn it loose it will defend itself. So let's get started. I'm going to read them, and then we'll go through them. Christ's church and her ordinances. We believe in the one universal church composed of all those in every time and place who are chosen in Christ and united to Him through faith by the Spirit in one body, with Christ himself as the all-supplying, all-sustaining, all-supreme, and all-authoritative head. We believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. We believe it is God's will, sorry, 12.2. We believe it is God's will that the universal church find expression in local churches in which believers agree together to hear the word of God proclaimed, to engage in corporate worship, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to build each other's faith through the manifold ministries of love, 
to hold each other accountable in the obedience of faith through biblical discipline and to engage in local and world evangelization. The church is a body in which each member should find a suitable ministry for his gifts. It is the household of God in which the Spirit dwells. It is the pillar and bulwark of God's truth in a truth-denying world. And it is a city set on a hill so that men may see the light of its good deeds, especially to the poor, and give glory to the Father in heaven. 12.3 We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in His death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God, the true Israel, and an emblem of burial and cleansing signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. 12.4 We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread signifying Christ's body given for His people and drink the cup of the Lord signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord and thus proclaim His death until He comes. Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually. In that, by faith, they are nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death and thus grow in grace. 12.5 We believe that each local church should recognize and affirm the divine calling of spiritually qualified men to give leadership to the church through the role of pastor-elder in the ministry of the word and prayer. Women are not to fill the role of pastor elder in the local church, but are encouraged to use their gifts in appropriate roles that edify the body of Christ and spread the gospel. I will start in 12.1. You'll see where it's bolded. Um, I won't go through and read the whole things again. I'll just read the bolded part. Uh, With Christ himself, as the all-supplying, all-sustaining, all-supreme, and all-authoritative head. Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Ephesians 1.22 says, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 4, 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We see in all these passages that it is Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. We believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. Ephesians 3.10 Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Matthew 5.14 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
This is the ultimate purpose of the church, the glory of the Father. 12.2, letter B, um, we believe it is God's will that the universal church find expression in local churches in which believers agree together to engage in corporate worship. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's the botry, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is corporate worship? Corporate worship is twofold. It is the coming together of the body to edify the saints and to worship God. We see a perfect example of that in Colossians 3:15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So where does corporate worship take place? To my knowledge, we are not given instruction as to where corporate worship should take place, just that it should take place. We're told that it happened in a house with Aquila and Priscilla in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, we're also told that it happened in an upper room in Acts 20 when uh, Eutychus fell out of the window. Uh, but to my knowledge, I'm glad to be proven wrong. We are not given a direct prescription as to where corporate worship should take place. We are given the how it should take place. Um, down to letter D. In which believe, believers agree together to build each other's faith through the manifold ministries of love. In the midst of some confusion about spiritual gifting, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let us use them to build each other's faith through the manifold ministries of love. Uh, we'll move down to the church. The church, and then letter D, a city set on a hill, so that men may see the light of its good deeds, especially the poor. Pause there. Luke 14, 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just and give glory to the Father in heaven. We saw this earlier in Matthew 5. You're a light of the world, a city set on a hill, um, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 12.3 
We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Pause there again. Romans 6, 3 says, Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is an expression. It has no saving power. We must consider the thief on the cross who said in Luke 23, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus didn't say, no, you have to go get baptized. He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You might say, but what about 1 Peter 3, 21, which says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Did you hear it? To this. To what? Wayne Gruden can say it a whole lot better than me. Open quote. Finally, what about 1 Peter 3, 21, where Peter says, baptism now saves you. Does this not give clear support to the Roman Catholic view that baptism itself brings saving grace to the recipient? No. But when Peter uses this phrase, he continues in the same sentence to explain exactly what he means by it. He says that baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, that is not as an outward physical act which washes dirt from the body, that is not the part which saves you, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, that is, as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism. We could paraphrase Peter's statement by saying, baptism now saves you, not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. In this way, Peter guards against any view of baptism that would attribute automatic saving power to the physical ceremony itself. Close quote. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Continue with the article. Um, by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Acts uh, 8.36 to 39, we see that Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water, signifying that there was a sufficient amount of water for baptism. Again, John 3.23, we see water was plentiful there at Anon near Salem. Also at the baptism of Jesus, Mark 1.10, we see that he came up out of the water. The Greek word baptizo actually means to plunge, dip, immerse something in water, and is the commonly recognized meaning of the ancient Greek term, both inside and outside the Bible. 12.4, we believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread, signifying 
Christ's body given for His people and drink the cup of the Lord, signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. Luke 22. And when the hour came, He reclined at table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have honestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God's, God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Continuing with that article. Uh, we do this in remembrance of the Lord and thus proclaim his death until he comes. Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually, in that by faith they are nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death, and thus growing grace. There are at least two other prominent views of the partaking of the Lord's Supper. These are transubstantiation, which is held by the Roman Catholic Church, and consubstantiation, which is held by the Lutheran Church. Transubstantiation is the teaching that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ at the moment the priest says, this is my body during the Mass and elevates the bread. Thus repeating the sacrifice. In some sense, every time the Mass is celebrated, the symbolic statements of Christ are completely ignored. Consubstantiation, a view originated by Martin Luther, holds, according to Gruden, that the bread does not actually become the physical body of Christ, but that the physical body of Christ is present in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. Again, according to Gruden, this too fails to realize that Jesus is speaking of a spiritual reality, but using physical objects to teach us. 12.5, we believe that each local church should recognize and affirm the divine calling of spiritually qualified men to give leadership to the church through the role of pastor elder in the ministry of the word and prayer. Note, qualified men, assuming a plurality of elders. Replicating the patterns of Acts 14, 23, Acts 20, 17 to 35, Titus 1, 5, 1 Timothy 4.14, 4, James 5.14, 1 Peter 5.1, and Hebrews 13.17. Plenty of evidences for that. The qualifications of an elder pastor are given in 1 Timothy 3.1-7 and Titus 1.6-9. When Grace Church installs an elder, it is because he has been proven to be biblically qualified. These qualifications are not to be held out as standards only for our elders or pastors, but for every man that calls himself a follower of Christ. 
The standard for elder is not distinct from the standard of Christ-likeness. It is Jesus who is our exemplar. There is no greater calling on this earth than that of pastor. And we must be faithful to pray for these men as they deal with eternal issues. Uh, and the last statement we'll look at in 12.5 is women are not to fill the role of pastor elder in the local church. I have only one passage referencing this seemingly hot topic. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But, Grace Church, women are encouraged to use their gifts in appropriate roles that edify the body of Christ and spread the gospel. We have a few minutes for questions, comments, concerns, critiques. I, I might be able to answer them about what we've talked about and cabinets. You can ask me about cabinets if you want. Any questions concerning statements? Yes. Yes. Find it. Uh, consubstantiation. A view originated by Martin Luther holds, according to Gruden, that the bread does not actually become the physical body of Christ, but that the physical body of Christ is present in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. Um, again, according to Gruden, this too fails to realize Jesus was speaking in spiritual reality using physical object. Gruden compared it to, and I'm, I'm going to shred his comparison, but he compared it to a sponge with water in it. Um, the sponge doesn't stop being a sponge, but it's filled with water. Still a sponge, but it's filled with water. So that's the example given. Uh, so I'm assuming he means the bread is not the body, but becomes the body. And I don't... He was ridiculed harshly for that belief um, and couldn't prove it biblically at all. Sorry, I don't have more information than that. Anybody else? Okay. Well, we're a few minutes early. Um, got about five minutes it's 940 I don't know what time they'll let the kiddos out but uh, let's pray father once again we're so thankful for your church Lord, we'll, we're, we're thankful for the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism that we can see um, in a physical way a representation of the death 
burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're so thankful for the elders that you've gifted us with. May we be faithful to pray for them, Lord. Um, May we be faithful to love them, to encourage them, uh, as they are dealing with very weighty things and, and will be held accountable for these things. So God, make us a faithful church to pray for our elders. Lord, and we're thankful for the women of Grace Church and, and the way they serve and the way they sacrifice time. And, and Lord, we're, we're, even with the Lancasters, the, the trial that's going on there, how this church has been faithful to reach out and to offer help, um, services, encouragement. Lord, it's such a blessing to me to know that your church is faithful to do that. So Lord, we do lift up uh, Pastor Brian this morning as he opens the word and brings it. Um, Lord, do what you do. And if today is the day of salvation for someone, make it happen, Lord. Change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Give sight to blind eyes. And as we talked about this morning, get all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.